Take your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. If you have been coming or following along, your Bible almost kind of just falls open to that spot now, doesn't it? Um, taking our time going through the Gospel of Luke. But before we talk about Luke, um, I had the privilege to attend our missions committee meeting this past Tuesday night, and our missions committee is doing some exciting good things. And we are, we're so blessed to be able to partner with some really neat people around the world. And if you know me at all, many of you know me really well, the, one of the worst things that I do, I do it terribly, and I don't enjoy doing it, is asking for money, but I really am thrilled to present an opportunity to our church this morning. Not for us here in Johnstown, not for this church, but for brothers that I have met, some that I have met down on the island of Haiti. Um, what you may not know if you're newer here is, is that we have a woman in our church, Beth Newton, who gave over 30 years of her life to being a missionary in Haiti. And because of that, we've been able as a church to, to develop some pretty great friendships down there and partnerships. Um, we sent a team of individuals down in 2007, I think it was, 2000, Paul's saying eight, 2008, to put a roof on a church out in the middle of nowhere. Literally, um, they went to the end of the road and they turned right and went up a riverbed and that's where they put the roof on this church. And... Uh, uh, that, that was such a wonderful experience. A couple years later, we, we took a team back and did a soccer ministry down there at a camp down on the southern part of the island, and it was a great experience. But in the course of doing that, we were able to meet some men. We met a couple pastors, and it just really resonated with me whenever I was down there just how blessed I am. And in this regard... Every week, I sit in an office, and, and for instance, this week, when I was studying Luke chapter 9, I pulled a variety of books off my shelf and books that I have bought and online resources, and I was able to just really study and rip apart Luke chapter 9. Those of you who like to study the Bible, you know how good a good resource is. Those of you who are students of the Word, maybe you don't study that deep, you know the benefit of a good study Bible. How many of you benefit from a good study Bible and the notes in that? These brothers down there, they literally faithfully work all week to provide very little for their families, and they pastor churches, churches that are on spots that you can't even find on a map, and, and they do it with many of them, just a New Testament, some of them. They don't even have a copy of the whole scriptures. And when we were in, when we were in Haiti, um, I believe it was 2009, I had the opportunity to meet a friend of Beth's named Johannes. Johannes is a German man, and so I couldn't really talk to him except through Beth, who um, she's talking to him in French, and I'm talking in English, and Beth's making sense of it all. And um, Johannes has been in Haiti for decades, training men to be pastors. And right now, he's training 30 men to be pastors. And, and what that means is these men literally are giving up a week of their time and traveling by foot, by bus, by moped, hundreds of miles to come meet with Johannes and do a week of intense theological training, then going back for a week and then coming for another week. 
These guys are doing it with scraps of scripture. We've been presented an opportunity as a church. Beth is going to be flying to Haiti the Friday after Easter. Johannes has made the need known to us for $2,000, for $2,000, that's $67 a man. I know I sound like a TV ad, don't I? I sound like a bad TV ad right now, don't I? Go ahead, say, and I'm really bad at it, aren't I? But for $67 a man, we can supply these men with a French study Bible, with a dictionary, and with a concordance. Stuff that you and I take for granted. And so, I don't know, if you're new to the church, you may not realize this. It's been a couple years since we did it because we didn't even have church last year on Easter. Every year at Easter, we do an Easter love offering. And this year for our Easter love offering, we want to collect this money and we want to send it down with Beth to Haiti. I think we can do that, can't we, church? I think we can do that. And, and whatever comes in over and above that, we have some great opportunities in Nigeria to, to, to also further theological training there in Nigeria. I think we can do that. And I think we can do that and, and express our love for Christ in that and, and really encourage the church around the world. So I've made you aware of this opportunity. My sales pitch is turned off. I won't do this again for another six months because I really stink at it. Luke chapter 9. If you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. We're so glad you're here. And uh, you're, you're kind of parachuting in. If you've been with us all along, we've been going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book of Luke. And we come to Luke chapter 9 and verse 37. And I have a question for you this morning. I want you to put yourself in the mind. Last week we saw Peter, James, and John up on the mountain of transfiguration and they see Christ in all his glory. And I want you to put yourself in their shoes for a second. Can you do that with me? Put yourself in their shoes. You have just seen the, a remarkable thing. You have seen Jesus' glory revealed, the way he appears when he's in heaven. You, you, you've seen him in, in, in the fullness of this glory and then you have to leave and you have to come down off the mountain. You have to leave and you have to come back to the world. Okay? How many of you would be happy to do that? Peter, James, and John, if you remember, Peter suggested, hey, let's, let's just build some booths up here. Let's just stay here. This would be a really good thing. Let's just stay here. And, and here's the thing. You know, if, if I had the opportunity to see Jesus in conversation with Moses and Elijah, I would probably want to stay too. And when I came off the mountain, I probably would not transition well. Anybody else with me? These guys didn't transition well either. And we're going to see that this morning in Scripture. What's interesting is if we had the time, I would lay aside Matthew's account and Mark's account and Luke's account of this. And one thing that would be really striking to us is, is how Luke plays the editor in this. You know, when you watch the news, or what they call the news anymore, or you read an article, you do realize that there's a lot more footage that you didn't see, right? You, and when you read a newspaper account, you realize there's a lot more questions that were asked, and there was a lot greater and, and deeper responses that were given. In our text here this morning, Luke does some editing. He cuts some stuff out. And we have to ask ourselves, why are you doing that, Luke? Well... 
I think we get the answer in the one detail that Luke puts in that the other two gospel writers don't. And we'll find that in, in one of the verses of Scripture this morning. We'll find that in verse 43 of our text. But Luke intentionally cuts some of the dialogue out. He cuts some of the, the lengthier dialogue that Jesus goes through with his disciples and that Jesus goes through with the father of this boy that we're about to meet. And the reason he does that is, is Luke wants to connect this event to the event that's just happened on the day before. Luke wants to connect this event to, to Jesus on the mountain and now Jesus now off the mountain. And he wants us to see Jesus the exact same way. Have you ever had a mountaintop experience with Jesus? I don't know when you were younger. How many of you went to Christian camp when you were younger? And you left and you were like, I will never love God more than I love God right now. And then like two days later, you're, you're disobeying your parents, you're, you're, you're doing all that stuff, right? That's the way that works, right? In a way, Peter, James, and John have been on the mountain. And I mean, you, you can just picture it, you can just feel it. When they come off the mountain, I will never love Jesus more, and I am going to be a Jesus guy all my life, and you know, I'm going to do all this stuff. And then you get in the world and you find out that the world has a way of just like, just sucking that right out of you, doesn't it? If we're not careful, the world has a way of just sucking that right out of us. And so this morning, before we leave here, I want us to see that Jesus is majestic when he's on the mountain and Jesus is just as majestic in the nitty gritty details of this earthly life. He's just as majestic. And whether or not we choose to see that doesn't stop the fact that our Savior is always glorious, he's always powerful, and he's always majestic. So, take your Bibles. Let's look at Luke chapter 9. We're going to begin reading in verse 37, and we're going to read down through verse 45 this morning. On the next day, so this is the day after the transfiguration, on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and it shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Let's pray this morning. Father, last week in the pages of Luke chapter 9, we saw your glory, Christ, revealed on the mountain. And it's my desire this morning that we would see you in all your glory and majesty as we set our minds on your word this morning. Father, help us to hear and listen and receive the words of Jesus well so that we might learn them and grow from them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to begin by focusing on the desperate situation that we have here. 
We have a desperate situation. This is, this is not your run-of-the-mill kind of thing that Jesus encountered. This is a very desperate situation. And, and here's, here's the, the scene. Jesus and the three disciples are coming off of the Mount of Transfiguration. And as they come down off the mountain, it's the next day. So they've overnighted up there, okay? And as they come down off the mountain, they, they are met with a large crowd, and the crowd that they're met with isn't necessarily there to see Jesus and his disciples. There, there's something that's going on in the center of this crowd. And, and as, as, as Jesus and the disciples get closer, the three, they, they come down and they find out that it's the other nine disciples who are in the middle of this crowd. And, and there are angry people shouting at them and screaming at them and, and berating them. And we're like, what's going on here? Well... What's going on here is, is that the religious leaders of the day, we find out from, from Matthew and Mark, the religious leaders, the scribes, the, the, the self-proclaimed keepers of the law and uh, those who added to the law are screaming at Jesus' nine disciples and they're mad at them because these nine disciples have been asked by a man who's desperate to heal his son. When you look at our text here this morning, we see this in verse 38. We have a desperate man here. We have a desperate man. Have you ever been desperate and, and like didn't know where to go to for help? You've been so desperate that all you could do was just look and say, help me, God. This is where this man is. He's got one child who's a son, which, which in that society is a good thing. If you're going to have just one child, it's good to have a son. Nothing against women or girls. I love them dearly. But, but here's the thing. If you're, a, if you're a man, you need a son because you need somebody to hand down all your, your possessions to. And so he has this son. And, 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 and this son, he, he, he desires good for him. But the son's got real issues. And in verse 38, he says, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. I, I beg you is not a simple request. This is a desperate plea for action. This, this is a humble, this, this guy has come to the end of his rope. And, and, and he realizes it. And now that Jesus has shown up, he's like, Jesus, I, I'm begging you. And what I find here is an interesting juxtaposition. We have religious leaders here that we find out from Matthew and Mark who are there. And, and these religious leaders are mad at Jesus' disciples which it's really convenient for them to be mad at Jesus' disciples. Have they been able to help the boy? This boy has been a part of their synagogue all these years, and have they been able to do anything for him? No. And let's understand something. Simple religion doesn't fix anything. And, 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 these, and these Jewish men, these Jewish leaders are mad at Jesus' disciples when they themselves have not been able to help this man at all, or this boy at all. And the situation is very desperate. Look at verse 39. It says that he's seized by a spirit. Literally, he's controlled. This man is, this young boy is demon possessed. This boy has no control over his own self. This demon has control over him. And, and, and this man is asking Jesus to just look at him. Give me, give me a compassionate look. This, my only child, my legal heir, is seized by this demon. It, it can, possesses him, it controls him, and on top of that, now, this is what it makes him do. Verse 39, he just, he just screams out without any, without any warning. 
Can you imagine month after month, year after year, living with this, not knowing when, when this kid is going to just totally lose it because this demon is, is doing this to him? He's being convulsed. Literally, the, the word there is like having an epileptic seizure. Have you ever seen anybody having a seizure? They're totally out of control of themselves, aren't they? Totally out of control of themselves. My wife and I have some dear friends that we were in ministry with for several years, and I will never forget when their son started at, at, at like 11, 12 years old, starting having epileptic seizures. Scared them to death. Scared them to death. And it is a scary thing to witness it. And this, this, this young man, he's convulsed. So much so that verse 39, it says he's foaming at the mouth. And, and he's shattered. It says it shatters him. Literally, it saps him of all his strength. And, and he, he literally is like, the picture here is he's broken to pieces by this. And on top of that, it wouldn't leave him alone. See it there at the end of verse 39? This demon will hardly leave him. This is going on. Just when you think you've had your last episode, just when you think you have some time to rest, this all starts over and over and over again. Can you imagine the desperation of this father? In Mark's account, we, we, we find out even a little bit more. In Mark chapter 9 and verse 22, it says this, that literally this demon forced him to throw himself into water and fire so that he would try to kill himself. No wonder... No wonder this, this father is so desperate. And in verse 40, we find out that, that this father has come probably looking for Jesus, and Jesus wasn't there, so he has some of his disciples there. And so he's, he's got nine of his disciples, and, he, and we find out in verse 40 that he's begged these disciples to cast out the demon. And you say to yourself, well, you know, this is probably only one of those things that only Jesus can do. Right? This is, this, is, this, is beyond, this is beyond their scope. Well, I just have to remind you, a couple weeks ago, we were beginning chapter 9. And look back in the account in chapter 9 and verse 1. Look at what Jesus had done with these, and remind yourself of what Jesus had done with these disciples. Jesus had done something pretty powerful with them. Remember, in verse 1 of chapter 9, and he called the 12 together, and he gave them power and authority over what? All demons. All demons. Okay? So when, when, when we read that, there, there's, not, there's not like a certain class of demons that, that they can't deal with, right? They have authority over all demons. They have the ability to cast out all demons. And, and we read nothing, and as we have gone through this account, there is nothing that has changed when Jesus fed the 5,000, when, when Peter confesses Jesus as the Lord, as Christ, when, when we go up on the Mount of Transfiguration, nothing has changed with these disciples. Nothing has changed. In fact, in the first six verses, they absolutely went out and they carried out the mission, did they not? They healed people, they cast out demons, they preached the word of God. By all accounts, they were successful in their ministry, weren't they? But now, all of a sudden, they've, they've, they've hit a wall here. They've hit a wall. And we have, to, we have to ask ourselves, what happened between chapter 9 and verse 1 to, to chapter 9 and verse 40? What, what has changed here? 
What has changed? And I'm going to submit to you that something big has changed here. And, and we get a hint in it in Jesus' words. Not in this text, but in one of the other gospel writers' texts. Something has changed, and it's not the power of God. <laughs> it's not the power of God. The power of God never changes. But something has changed with these men. And so Jesus encounters this. And if we're writing this story for Hollywood, we would probably have Jesus just immediately deal with the boy, right? Let's, let's, take, let's take care of the problem here. But before Jesus does, look at verse 41. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Ouch. Now, we have, we have seen, and if you've read the gospel accounts, you have seen for your own eyes Jesus be pretty harsh on the generation of, of Israelites that were alive in that day. For instance, in Matthew chapter 12, he calls Israel a generation of vipers. In, in verse 39 of Matthew 12, he calls them an evil and adulterous generation. In Luke chapter 11, he calls them a wicked generation. And now here's what he says, you faithless and twisted generation. And we might be tempted to think that this is just about Israel. He's talking to the crowd here. But he goes further with his comments. Do you see them? He goes further. He says, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? He's talking right to his disciples here. He's talking to his disciples here. And, and, and you, you see here a level of exasperation that we rarely see in Jesus. It is possible to exasperate the Lord. It is possible to do that. And what we see here is that these disciples have, 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 have disappointed Jesus. And, it, and it's a huge level of disappointment. Keep your finger here, and I want you to turn to Mark's account of this in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. I told you that Mark did this kind of differently, and, and, and that Luke edited some things out. After Jesus heals the boy in Mark chapter 9, Mark gives us the wrap-up, if you will. He gives us the post-game of this. So verse 27 in Mark 9, But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? Okay, so, so let's just stop there for a second. He's healed. They, they go to a house, and the disciples are probably, if it was, would you be a little embarrassed that you couldn't dealt with this situation? I, was, I would be embarrassed. And so they get in the house and they're with Jesus and they're like, what happened out there? What, did, did you like change the agreement that we had here? Are we not allowed to cast out demons anymore? Um, did something just change here? And notice what Jesus' answer to him is. He said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but special powers. By anything but me. No, what's it by? By prayer. By prayer. Now that we know that, go back to Luke chapter 9. 
And Jesus' initial words of rebuke are interesting for us. Oh, faithless and twisted generation. Oh, faithless and twisted generation. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. These people, these disciples had a perverted faith. They had a, they had a twisted faith. And, and it can happen to us. And it does happen to us. Their faith had shifted from faith in God to accomplish his power through them to their ability that they could do it themselves. How do I know that? What didn't they do in this time? What's the one thing that Jesus said to them? This doesn't come out except by what? Prayer. By prayer. Prayer is an act of faith. Do you know that? Prayer is nothing more than an act of faith. Prayer is a statement of dependence. Prayer, prayer is saying this, I can't accomplish anything except by your power, and so God, I'm talking to you because you gotta do it. And what's happened in the lives of these disciples is they've gotten pretty good at healing people. They've gotten pretty good, they thought, at, at casting out demons, and now they get this boy, and I can just see them. Well, Peter, James, and John aren't here, but boy, oh boy, there's nine of us. We can handle this demon. We'll show those guys. We'll show those guys, and they did all that they knew to do to cast the demon out, except they didn't do the most important thing. They didn't depend on the power of God. They didn't depend on the power of God. And I want to say to you, when you and I act without prayer, we are saying, hey, God, I got this. Don't worry. Don't, I, I can take care of this one down here. Go help somebody else. I don't need your divine help. And in the words of Jesus, it's twisted. It's twisted thinking. It's wrong thinking. Let me make this practical for us this morning. If you work in Awana, if you teach a Sunday school class, if you stand at a door and greet people, if you work in the nursery, I don't care what it is. If you take a meal to somebody as an act of encouragement to them, if you do it in your own strength, it is twisted and wrong. That's not my words, that's Jesus' words. And I fear... That for myself, I fear for us as a church, that if we're not careful, we're going to be guilty of twisted faith. Every mission endeavor, every Sunday service, whether, whether it's the music, whether it's, whether it's somebody who's doing security, if we're not doing it with a prayerful attitude, then we're doing it with a prideful attitude. If we're not doing it dependent on him, in the raising of your children, in, in the, in, in, when you go to work every day, if you're not doing it with a prayerful attitude, you're doing it with a prideful attitude. Either you're depending on his strength or you're depending on yours. And all of a sudden, they got in crunch time and nothing was happening for them and they're so bewildered. And why are you and I surprised whenever things don't go our way? It's because we haven't been praying about it. We haven't been praying about it. When was the last time a WANA worker 
that on your way driving to church for Awana, you just prayed on the way here. The youth worker, work at an impact. When was the last time when you drove into the parking lot? Lord, Lord, give me strength to do what I need to do tonight for your glory, for your purposes. When was the last time when, when, you, when you took a meal to somebody that you said, Lord, I want to be an encouragement. I want to I do something. I want to I represent you well. I'm dependent on you. Notice what Jesus does, though. After, after doing this, he, he then, verse 42 as the sun is coming, the demon takes one last opportunity to show just how much influence he has. And, and he, he throws the boy on the ground, and what Jesus does is he, he rebukes the unclean spirit. I think Matthew's gospel tells us this. He tells the demon, leave him and never come back. I like that. I like that. Leave him and don't come back. You see, when Jesus does it, he does it fully, doesn't he? <laughs> he doesn't just do it halfway. He says, leave him and don't come back. Mark tells us that the, they all feared that he was dead. He was just laying there motionless. And I'm sure the crowd is ready to say, oh, look what you did now. You killed him, Jesus. And Jesus lifts him by the hand and takes him to the father and says, here, here's your boy. He gives him back to his father. And notice the response then in verse 43. Notice the response. Luke is connecting this to, to the Mount of Transfiguration. And, and this is what he's connecting. They are astonished at the majesty of God. When was the last time that you opened your eyes and looked around and were amazed at the power of God? I just want to tell you, he's as glorious down here at the base of the mountain as he is up on top of the mountain. He is. And too often, because we're doing things in our own effort, we're too busy to see how glorious and how powerful he is and what he's accomplishing. Just as the three disciples were amazed by Jesus' glory on the mountain, these people are astonished. They're absolutely blown away by what they've just seen here. But the glory doesn't stop there. Continue on in verse 43. But while they were all marveling at everything that he was doing, okay? So the crowd is going nuts over this, right? The crowd is just amazed by this. Jesus, if you will, you, you just kind of get the picture that Jesus kind of takes and herds his disciples out of there. And he says this to them in verse 44. When Jesus says, let these words sink into your ears, do you think this is about to be an important thing? Anybody with me on that? Let these words sink in your ears. We're about to hear something really important that Jesus is about to say here. Okay? And, and he's addressing this to his disciples. And he's saying to them, hey, don't, don't just listen to this. Fix your minds on this. Understand this. Contemplate this. And if I'm there, I'm thinking this. He's about to say something really huge and really cool. He, he's probably going to announce that he's ready to overthrow Rome. Right? It's on, man. Let's go. Let's go. And here's what he says. Here's what he says. 
the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. What? Are you kidding me? This, this is the second time in a short span of a little over a week that Jesus has said this to them. Okay? Okay? Just, just, go, just go back up. When Peter calls Jesus the Christ, in verse 22, what does Christ say to the disciples? Let's go back up and look at it. Verse 22. This is about eight, nine days prior to this. He tells them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day and be raised. And then he goes into this call of discipleship for them. And what we find out is, is that up in verse 22, the disciples really weren't paying attention because it didn't really sink in. And so now he says to them in verse 44, hey, understand this. Let these words sink in. I'm about to be delivered over to men. You ever get discouraged that you don't get everything that God wants you to know out of the word? You ever, you ever get discouraged by that? You're in good company. You're in the company of the disciples. They didn't always get it either. Here's Jesus speaking directly to them, and he says, this is about to happen. And this is not glorious news to these disciples. Think of Peter and John and James, who have just been up on the mountain, and then they come down, and they see their other nine disciples that have kind of failed, and they're kind of like, <laughs> if we'd have been here, right? And then Jesus gloriously heals this boy, and they're thinking to themselves, it's only going to get better and better and better and better, and Jesus drops this bomb on them. No, no. What I said last week about having to suffer and die, that's really going to happen here. That's really going to happen. And they did what you and I do. They kind of just pushed it out of their mind. They kind of pushed it out of their mind. Do you see it there in verse 45? They didn't understand this. What's more implied there is, is that they, they, they didn't want to understand this. Okay, it, it, this, this is not what we need to hear right now, Jesus. And I want you to see the graciousness of our Lord. Do you see what he does? He conceals it from them. It's almost like you can't handle this truth right now. It's concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And I have to ask myself, before I get too up on my high horse, how am I like these disciples? Well, if you're the child of God in this room today, and whether or not you are or not, we have been told, have we not, some big news that's coming, haven't we? Have we been told some big news in his word about what's coming? We've been told he's going to return, right? We've been told he's coming. That, that, that's big news. It's not as big a news as that he's going to die, but that's pretty big news that he's going to return. And yet, I find myself doing exactly what these disciples do. I just kind of push that out of my thinking. Anybody else with me on that? I, I just kind of push that out of my thinking, and I'm just going to go on with my life, and I'm just going to do my thing, and I'm just going to go with my flow here, and, and I don't really want to be interrupted with your plans, God, and it doesn't matter whether or not I want to be interrupted. He's still going to come back. And in light of him coming back, he's made several commands to me and to you. One, we're told to work, right? Go to work. 
I'm about to return. And here's the thing that I know about myself. If I can put out of my mind that he's going to return, then I don't have to be accountable in my mind for, for what I need to do in preparation for his return. And what we have seen just in our own, in our own little world in the past year and how things have just totally kind of, have you just noticed how things kind of just went like this and went like that? What we're seeing is God's at work and, and Christ's return is closer than it's ever been. I don't know when it's going to be. But, but we can't be like these disciples and just ignore that big news. Because the picture of a dying Messiah didn't fit in their mind, in their twisted thinking of what Jesus should be. He's the powerful, all-glorious one who should be throwing off Rome, right? So as we leave this text this morning, there's a couple things that we need to take out of this. We need to take home, okay? It's been good to come and hear the word of God, but if it's not doing anything to change our hearts, we've wasted our time, right? There's a couple things we need to take out of this. <laughs> number one, number one, Jesus is always glorious, and he's always doing glorious, majestic things. We don't have to be just on the mountaintop with him. Even down off the mountain, he's doing glorious things. The same Jesus who revealed his glory on the mountain is the same Jesus who healed that boy, is the same Jesus who's alive and at work in, in our lives today. And I think it's easy for us to, to view everything that's going on around us. It's easy for me anyway, maybe it's not for you, but it's easy for me to view everything that's going on and, and, and just to be blunt about it, everything is going to hell in a handbasket, Right? And it's easy to see that and get discouraged by that and forget that the same glorious Jesus is still right here doing glorious things every day. Every day. Secondly, we need to be warned that we don't develop that same warped faith that those nine disciples had. And what's happened is, we've had a pretty comfortable existence, have we not? We've had a pretty comfortable existence. And when you have a comfortable existence, you tend to rely more on yourself and think that you're capable of handling things. And, and the more that you think you're capable of handling things and working hard and, 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 and depending on your gifting rather than on prayer, guess what happens? the farther you get away from depending on him. But let me caution us. This is not an excuse for laziness, okay? I'm not saying, okay, okay, so we depend on everything for prayer. I prayed about it, I don't have to do anything. That's not what I'm saying here. Augustine said it well when he said it this way. Pray as though everything depended upon God and then work as though everything depends upon you. I like that. Pray as though everything depends upon God and then you go to work like everything depends upon you because here's the thing, if you've prayed about it, you're gonna be dependent on him. What we're gonna find out when Paul opens the text to us next week when he preaches is that they didn't get it right away. 
They didn't get it right away. Let's preview and look ahead to verse 46. (laughs) An argument arose among them as to who was the greatest. (laughs) I mean, whoa, time out here. Time out. You guys, you guys failed miserably. You failed miserably with, with the epileptic kid who was controlled by the demon. You would think that they might be humbled, right? You might think that, right? No. No. Twelve men with lots of testosterone get in a room together and they have an argument as to who's the greatest. And this isn't an argument over LeBron and Jordan. This is about themselves. Who's the greatest? And you know what that tells me? How quickly we will forget. Who is the majestic one? Who is the greatest one? It's Christ. It's Christ. So, so don't go out this week. Don't leave here in a minute and, and, and go out and think you have to be the greatest. He is the greatest. You get to serve the greatest one. You get to serve the greatest one. You get to be the ambassador of the greatest one. That's a great thing, isn't it? We don't have to worry about being great. He is the great one. Father, forgive us for warped faith. Forgive us for that that just terrible, ugly mixture of yeah, I'm a Christian, but I can do all these things, and, and I don't really need the power of God, and, 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 and break us to the point that we understand that there is nothing good that we can accomplish apart from you first doing it through us. May we learn from this. May we, may we see where the disciples faltered so that we may not falter in the same area. Forgive us for dependence upon ourselves. And remind us of the glorious greatness of our Savior, Jesus. We love you. May we represent you well as we leave from here. May we, may we serve you well. God, may we love each other well this week. Be an encouragement to one another. Show hospitality to one another. May we, may we be kind to one another. May we forgive one another. May we serve one another this week. In a world that's not doing any of those things. Because we love you and we love one another, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.